Welcome to 27 Speaks, a weekly podcast with the staff of the Express News Group who share their insights into the latest stories making news on the East End of Long Island. 27 Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. We are recording. Yes, we're recording. And that is Brendan O'Reilly on the record button audio. Hey, Brendan, how are you? Hi, Annette. How are you doing? Hi, everybody. My name is Brendan. I am the deputy managing editor of the Express News Group. And my name is Annette Hinkle, and I'm the arts and living editor of the Express News Group. And this is a very small group. Usually we have like so many editors, we don't know what to do with them. Um, but this week, it's just Brendan and I. But we do have a special guest with us. And our special guest today is Jonathan Miller. Jonathan, you are a real estate appraisal and consulting person, manager, <laughs> owner. I don't know what to call you. Call me appraiser slash market analyst. Market analyst. And the name of your company is? Miller Samuel. Miller Samuel. I, you know, it's funny. It's like, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't bought or sold real estate in a really long time, so I'm not even sure what's out there, but how does your, can you want to talk a little bit about how your firm functions and sort of what you do? And then we'll launch in to the crux of our talk, which will be about the story that Brendan has been working on. Sure. So uh, Miller Samuel started out in the mid eighties as a uh, real estate appraisal and consulting firm. We're based in New York city, uh, but cover the, uh, the uh, metro area, including the Hamptons and the North Fork. And uh, we do appraisals. Probably a third of our business is for lending purposes, for mortgages, for purchase and refi. So we're hired by banks. But we also, probably two-thirds of our business is related to things like estate and trust and um, divorce or matrimonial issues any anywhere where a our state a state would be you know we go we look at a value as of a date of death or prior uh, a prior moment um so anywhere where a value needs to be associated with a, a date and time is what our firm does we're not a you know we're not a 100 percent bank type appraiser we 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 do a lot of specialty appraisals too uh, the easiest example i can think of is that we appraise Things like, um, I always kind of kid, we praise dumbwaiter air, air shafts and co-op buildings where someone wants to incorporate that space uh, into their co-op apartment. Um, I've done litigation on, um, you know, that a Starbucks retail store, the venting wasn't correct and the apartment above it smelled like Jamaican Blue Mountain coffee um and what's the impact of that or uh a sound issue where the people above are tap dancing and uh without carpet and you know what is the damage of the sound so we beyond just the regular sort of cookie cutter um type things uh we we also do sort of obscure um specialty type valuation and then after that comes mark you sort of market analysts. So Miller Samuel follows um, uh, Douglas Elliman's footprint nationwide. And we cover, uh, we publish research on um, over 40 housing markets in the US. And uh, I'm the author of all the research. And that research is used by the alphabet soup of federal agencies like the Federal Reserve and IRS and 
all sorts of agencies. Um, and, uh, and then I, we also do consulting outside of elements footprint as well. Like, you know, I did a couple of years stint consulting with cent, um, mar housing markets in central Pennsylvania. Um, so a little all over the place. That's quite the resume. So it's interesting. I followed you because I follow the element report and that's how we started talking. And we've spoken yeah. almost every quarter for years and particularly with a focus on the Hamptons real estate market and, and it's ups and downs over quite a while. And we went through the pandemic We're we're talking about how things just went up and then they went up again. And then they went up again and inventory went down and then it was a record low. And then it was another record low. Like I remember being astonished when it went below a thousand and it seemed like, wow, we're below a thousand now. And then it went to 600 something. And that was a record low in all recorded history since 2005 or six. Um, and then we, so we went back up at the half to 877 uh, single family homes available for sale in the Hamptons. But I think if you're an average person and you're not the high-end buyer, it's important for you to understand that 333 of those 877 homes have a price tag of $5.78 million or up. So you're looking at less than 500 houses that have a price tag of less than $5 million, but thousands of potential buyers. You have people who grew up here and they want to buy a home where they grew up, or you have people who they work at the school district or they work at town hall, but they live in Brookhaven or they live in Islip town and they would really like to own a home here. So then when you tell them, well, there's only 500 choices and uh, you know, mo most, even among those 500 choices, they cost more than $2 million. So I find there there is a lot of value in what in our newspaper following the real estate market out here so closely. And I've been very appreciative of the numbers that you're able to provide and the analysis that you're able to offer. Um, so we recently had a good conversation for the Pulse supplement that we come out with twice a year where we have a two page spread of all the sales statistics uh, and we have analysis, we have our real estate roundtable, we have Jonathan's analysis. Usually we take a look at what's happening legislatively for this issue. What's happening legislatively is mainly the community housing fund. Um, I don't know if that's something you've been watching, but now we have a uh, half percent real estate transaction tax with that money going back in to pay for affordable housing initiatives. And I thought that somebody out there was going to say, oh, well, you know, providing all all these means to allow people to buy houses uh, with subsidies is going to cause housing prices to go up. But then everybody that our reporters have spoken to have said that that's not going to happen. You're not going to add enough buyers into the market that you're going to drive prices up any further than they already are. Um, is have has that even been on your radar as a market watcher that there could be an affordable housing tax and and opportunities coming so so the tax yes um uh the <clears throat> the empirical impact right not the uh, sort of shoot from the hip uh you know uh thoughts um by people that are in the market but you know what actually will show up is something that we'll be on the lookout for the um 
you know, when you look at what happened, you call it the pandemic era uh, with housing prices in uh, on the East End is, um, you know, it essentially was a rocket ship. Um, but I think the narrative sort of um, obliterated the affordable story aspect of it, which is, you know, it's inherent, it's, it's, it's highly uh, necessary for, you know, a housing market that is rising in expense that the people that work there that provide the services for the community have to be able to afford it as well. And this is a problem I see throughout the regions that I cover. This is not unique to the Hamptons. And I think it's become a bigger issue because we've seen just unbelievable um, price growth just in the last couple of years. So, for example, the median price in uh, the Hamptons, uh, it was a record $1.6 million. But that's 88% higher, almost double what it was pre-pandemic, meaning third quarter of 19. And this isn't being done through financial engineering, you know, liar loans and all the stuff we read about during the financial crisis. This is based largely largely on the collapse of inventory and, um, and uh, the pandemic, which pushed uh, many people to out of the city uh, to look at a, a term, I think I've mentioned to you quite a few times, I'm trying to get into the urban dictionary for real estate, mm -hmm. if there was such a thing, uh, was the term co-primary, where people were looking at the Hamptons as an alternative primary residence, as opposed to some sort of second home market. And that's because of remote work. Remote work has the ability to, re to work remotely, skews higher, with wages and and worth. And I think the Hamptons has been a key beneficiary of it. Yeah, so we've arrived in this place where um, the people who want to just have one primary home and they want it to be on the South Fork of Long Island because they could only afford one home, they can't really compete with the people who have the means to actually afford two homes, to have a very nice apartment or co-op in New York City, and then to also have a home in the Hamptons that when that home in the Hamptons they were going to use eight weeks a year plus a few weekends was worth less to them than it is now when they're going to spend 50% of their time there. Uh, and then suddenly spending a little more money on that second home and and springing for the extra bathrooms and bedrooms and the larger pool uh, seemed to be uh, much more acceptable to those buyers. Right. And and but also, too, you know, it's it's become a lot. It became a lot more difficult. So in the second quarter, uh, one out of three transactions in the Hamptons sold for more than the seller was asking, you know, our, sort of our proxy for bidding wars um, that, uh, you know, and, and prior to that, you know, prior to the pandemic, bidding wars were, you know, five, seven, eight percent of the of sales activity. It wasn't a third of the market. And um, and and this is all about supply, that supply just was my favorite word of the pandemic era has been obliterated, like inventory has been obliterated. It hasn't been 
press lower, it's been wiped clean. And that's because, you know, the combination, you know, if you skew lower in, in the sort of price bandwidth of housing, you're more focused on affordability by, you know, the cost of financing. So Fed policy, the spike in rates um, uh, really push the pause button for many. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, Fed policy has also made the financial markets tremendously volatile. And so that also makes, you know, the, the more affluent also pause or, or be, you have a concern. And then on top of it, sales before the Fed move, you know, at the end of um, the first quarter, um, sales were already slowing because there wasn't product to sell, that inventory had simply collapsed. Uh, and even now, um, you know, inventory on a quarter over quarter basis up, is up by about a third. Um, but inventory is still um, about, you know, depending on the segment, two thirds lower with that recent jump, two thirds lower than before the pandemic. So, um, you know, it's sort of like I look at the, uh, you know, when you go from one to two, that's a hundred percent increase. It sounds like a lot, but you're still only going from one to two. And I, I think that's sort of how we are right now, where there is an upward tick in inventory, but relative to pre-pandemic levels, it's, it's not high. It's, it's still low. Yeah. And, and is, is this, can I ask, is this happening everywhere? I mean, I don't think the Hamptons are unique in that, right? Is this inventory problem across the country, do you find? This is universal. Uh, and it is happening in the 40 markets that I cover pretty consistently. I think the, the only place where it's less uh, extreme is Manhattan. And the reason, and so Manhattan doesn't, ha didn't have a collapse in inventory because it was nine months late to the party, essentially, that um, whereas the Hamptons boomed starting, you know, just before the lockdown ended, really. Um, uh, and uh, that didn't happen in the city for another nine months because in early 2021 is when we started to see vaccine adoption ramp up with the, the shots became available and no longer was the city seen as you know, a dangerous place that it was perceived pre pre vaccine, um, and then in you know during the, the with this Fed Fed actions, the boom in Manhattan was interrupted. So inventory had come way down from the spike uh, leading up to um, you know the the early twenty twenty one. A lot of that excess had been worked off, but it wasn't low unlike the Hamptons and the North Fork and Long Island and all the housing markets I cover across the U.S. Uh, are experiencing a very similar phenomenon. In fact, uh, you know, I said bidding wars in the second quarter average, were a total, uh, average 33.9% uh, of, uh, of, of the transactions, one out of three transactions sold above ask. In parts of Southern California, it's in the 80 percentile range. And in some submarkets, it's almost a hundred. So, so I would say that to answer your question, yes, it's happening everywhere. And I wouldn't describe the Hamptons as the most extreme example. 
I, I mean, the 80% sounds unbelievable. Also, when I hear things like that, like, oh, the home sold over ask, it's like, well, did somebody make a mistake? Should they have just asked for more money in the first place? <laughs> right, right. Well, that's, that's you know, a good point is that, um, uh, you know, what wh were they price low? Um, but generally speaking, I don't think so. The, um, the, the, you know, the, the transaction data is showing rising prices and the brokerage community was trying to get out ahead of what that trend was. But the the upward price trend was steeper than previous historical would suggest. And so you had this sort of continuous cycle of, of bidding wars um, and, you know, multiple bids. So for example, the, um, of the one third of homes that closed in the second quarter uh, that were uh, over asked, the average amount of over asked, the premium in other words, above list was an average of 4.9%. So we were seeing, you know, roughly a 5% premium above the ask. And that's because prices were accelerating faster you know, continually faster until they hit the uh, this sort of Fed moment. Local support comes from the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Cordoraro. In these trying times, working full-time for their clients and the public interest, providing strong advocacy and attentive counsel, be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com 27 Speaks, brought to you by Sag Harbor Books and Southampton Books, independent bookstores located in the villages at 7 Main Street in Sag Harbor and 16 Hampton Road in Southampton, carrying a wide selection of new books, stationery, toys, games, first editions, and rare books. Their entire inventory is browsable on the website, SouthamptonSagHarborBooks.com. Now hiring booksellers at both locations. So the mortgage rates are are tricky in the Hamptons market because I would think they would have a bigger impact, but so few people seem to be dependent on financing unless you, you're actually looking at what the, the middle class local people are trying to buy. Those people are dependent on financing. Right. So now you could say, oh, yay, the prices aren't going up as fast. There's more inventory. Maybe that means I could buy something. Maybe the prices will even go down. But hey, wait, my ability to buy has now <laughs> been cut in half because I used to be able to get a 2.5% loan. Now the loan's over 5%. And right. now the rate's over 5%. You know, what I could afford on a $150,000 couple salary, uh, household income between, you know, maybe a the, the traditionally people always say like a teacher and a cop, right? Well, let Hundred fifty thousand for a teacher and a cop is uh, probably low, unless you're talking about a very new cop and a very uh, new teacher. But say and by the way, I have a one of my four boys uh, is a cop and his wife is a teacher, right. so I know exactly what yeah. you're talking about. Right. <laughs> so you know what they could afford on their salary was one thing when interest was two point five percent. Now what they can afford when interest is over five percent is a lot less. Correct. Um, so, you know, is this slowdown of benefit to the average person or is it really just of benefit to uh, the people who are searching for second or third homes? 
it's probably more of a benefit for people searching for second or third home because the affordability um you know has been challenged and one of the characteristics of the hamptons market at the moment of the lockdown was this and and this is not unique to the hamptons but specifically about the hamptons there was this inversion of of market strength in other words leading up to the pandemic lockdown uh the high end of the hamptons was weak you know it, it was a relatively soft conditions for the preceding several years and we saw a noticeable change um with the uh the salt tax issue the federal salt tax that came into effect at the beginning of 2018 but just generally speaking the inventory was bloated um you know the the high as you skewed higher price it was clearly you know rel is clearly weaker than the rest of the market when the pandemic hit two things happened almost instantly one was because zoom became or software like it became ubiquitous in 24 hours um uh and that mobility skews higher with more you know wealth and income um the higher end is what woke up first and the pandemic was far more punishing economically to lower wage earners as you move lower in price that's where you had more job loss and you know loss of income and um you know much more headwinds against home buying and that tends to be the market that is more dependent on lower rates, you know, or, or dependent on mortgage rates for acquisition, um, you know, whereas cash buyers tend to skew higher. I have a stat on that, although it's not the Hamptons, but in Manhattan, if you look at transaction volume, 5 million or higher, uh, it ranges from 70 to 90% of those purchases are cash buyers. And because I, I've always seen the Hamptons, at least the luxury market, joined at the hip with the Manhattan luxury market. Um, that I would think that there's a correlation in you know this the same idea that there's um, more cash buyers as you skew higher in price in the Hamptons, like you do in Manhattan. I know there was a few things that I was watching out for to see what would happen, like. Well, if Manhattan recalls everybody to the office, are people going to stop buying homes out east or are they going to sell those homes? Are they going to say, well, don't need that anymore? Um, you know, I'll go back to being a sometimes renter or maybe European travel is going to open up and people are going to say, well, I'd rather travel to Europe in the summer than, uh, you know, be stuck at, at one house in the Hamptons all summer. So, right. but now, so few offices actually recall their employees and that's because they can't yeah. uh and so what so what i mean by that is uh, first of all it seems like half of the hamptons is, is in europe right now like and i'm seeing that in yeah. florida yeah. as well there's so much traveling going on i think you know people have just been waiting you know um for the all clear uh move so you know Part of that is like what you say is actually happening. Um, but uh, the way I look at it is this, you know, the phenomenon of remote, like we're not done understanding it. I think we have three to five years to go. Uh, I thought it was really interesting in 2021 when I think it was Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan and uh, Goldman Sachs 
all came out. I think Morgan Stanley was leading the the cheerleading of this, saying, "Look, if you're not going to come back to work uh, full time, then you're in the wrong profession. You're in the wrong industry." And so people just quit, and uh, and then uh, you know, three or four months later, Jamie Dimon came out of you know CEO of J.P. Morgan and said, uh, "Well, you know, three days." seems fair um you know like there was a recognition and and one of the things that has been brought up to me many times is um well if we go into a recession right people want FaceTime with their bosses to keep their job and you know or or but i believe um just through sort of logic and reason that all that really means is that the return to work is like, you know, it was averaging two and a half days before uh, the recession. And now it's averaging three and a quarter days after the recession hits that it's, it's not this sea change. The, um, and this is more of a New York city stat, but the partnership for greater New York, which is a trade group that sort of, you know, cheerleads New York city came out with a study. I, I read about it probably two months ago that only 8% of office workers were working five days a week. That's, that's not a lot. Uh, I don't know what it was pre pandemic, but um, I think it's, I think sort of the toothpaste is out of the tube, whatever the phrase is uh, that there's no going back to the sort of default five day a week, partly because during the pandemic, it actually worked. The problem with remote work, though, remains lack of mentoring ability and training and a harder time sort of creating a corporate culture that, you know, is important. Um, so there's still lots of figuring out, but it is, I just, I would, I'm highly skeptical we're going to see anything close to five days a week in the future. And so therefore that doesn't, that doesn't mean that suggests to me that there wouldn't be a phenomenon in the Hamptons of, Hey, you know, I got to work five days a week now. So I'm going to sell my house. I, I just don't, I don't see that as reasonable. Yeah. And also like so many people moved out of the, out to other places that maybe never had that kind of real estate market, you know, like some small cities that people are working right. remotely from. Like I have, a daughter who's down in Charleston, South Carolina, she's in college there and finding her a rental apartment has been a, a incredible challenge this year. There's, um, there's bidding wars on rentals, um, yep. which is really <laughs> disheartening. Yeah, actually uh, we publish once a month, uh, the, uh, stats on the rental market We're next, uh, in Manhattan, Brooklyn and Northwest region of Queens. And, uh, and our reports coming out on this coming Thursday and for the last four or five months, um, around between 20 and 23, let's call it one out of five rentals in the city are renting for more than the landlord's asking. Right. So, That's so <laughs> that shows you, you know, and, and the reason that that's ex pervasive is because of mortgage, the spike in mortgage rates caused by Fed policy, because, um, Banks, as a general rule in this cycle, have been uh, much more conservative than long-term standards. Like they they didn't go into the uh, insanity mode that we saw in the housing bubble with 
liar loans and you just had to have a pulse or fog or mirror to get a mortgage. Um, there was none of that. And so, uh, you know, the financial, you know, sort of the banking world is on, you know, is in good shape. Like we're not looking at a banking crisis on the other side of this. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it is, um, it, it is sort of, um, um, you know, this idea that, uh, you apply for a mortgage, you know, during the process, the rates spike, you don't qualify anymore. The banks aren't going to have anything to do with you necessarily because of that. So you become a renter. Yeah. And so you're being pushed into an already tight rental market. And one of the reasons it's tight and whether we're talking about the Hamptons or anywhere in the, in the metro area or nationwide really is that, um, because of remote, I mean, there are people, you know, working in Chicago that live in Manhattan or the Hamptons. I mean, this is this is a complete um, destruction of like rules of thumb we had for, you know, hey, people living in the Manhattan, you know, they're they're working remotely. I mean, they live in the Hamptons; they're working remotely in Manhattan. They could be working in Boston. Like mm-hmm. it does, you know, like all this has changed and we're still trying to learn about it and figure it out. So that's why I, I see, um, I see the remote is continuing indefinitely to be an important sort of demand driver for markets like the Hamptons. We're seeing the same thing in I cover Aspen, Colorado, same idea, sort of a luxury second home market. Now, you know, someone that I had talked to said who would want to live in an Aspen during the summer? you know, because I can. Um, same idea. Hi, this is Ellen Diogardi. I'm the director of events for the Express News Group. I'm also the president of the Sag Harbor Chamber of Commerce. Community really matters to all of us at this company. I know it's a good part of why I'm here. We've hosted more than 50 of our Express Sessions events in Southampton, East Hampton, and Sag Harbor, focusing on issues that matter most to residents of the East End. We bring the most important government and community leaders and topic experts together in one room, and we often find answers to complicated questions, and we grow stronger together. This all takes staff time and company resources, but it's our job, and I'm happy to say we really love our work. But we can't do it without our subscribers. If this kind of community work is important to you, you can support it by becoming a subscriber. To subscribe, visit 27east.com slash subscribe, and thank you. It's funny that building has slowed down. And I assume it's because a lot of these builders, you know, they won't put a shovel in the ground until somebody's agreed to buy that house and they could pick out all the customizations that they want. But you would think when prices are as high as they are and you're not really going to have trouble finding a buyer if you build something, that the pace of building would be higher. Yeah. So so there's a couple of reasons, I think. Um, one is um, I think um, the price of land is prohibitive, you know, that you you end up being forced to build, you know, uh, something way at the top of the market when there might be plenty of supply in that submarket. The other thing is supply chain problems that the time to develop or to, you know, build a home and then be able to deliver it has expanded significantly. I remember seeing probably 
probably two months ago. Um, and actually, I just sold a house in Connecticut like three couple months ago. And it would it was like three months to get like you know replacement doors that go out onto our deck. Like, and and we ordered four, and three came, and one was broken, and so it was like another month and a half for the fourth one. And so just imagine a developer, you know, um, trying to manage costs, um, and they're you know they're they're you know they're paying way more for materials and labor than they were before. And their, um, you know, land is at a premium. They're they're squeezed, and they want it. They want they want to build more, but I think they're worried that they'll become overextended. I, I don't know. That's that's my that's my theory. I mean, I remember seeing pictures of subdivisions. I don't remember what the, who the national builder was. It wasn't in the Hamptons, but every garage door in the subdivision was covered with plywood because they couldn't get the doors. Yeah, I'm doing a small renovation at my house. And I mean, we're talking tiny and it's been over a year and like, yeah, yeah. It's quite, oh, yeah. Let's, we need a French door. It's like, all right, seven months or whatever. So this right, right. We had that with, uh, you know, we had a, you know, an oven break and it was like, we could replace the modest kitchen oven for like $8,000 huh. uh, and get it, in six months if we're lucky and you know it's like no you know so 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 normal times yeah you would think there would be more um but there's all these other factors that are in the sort of mix that i think are making it much more difficult for builder home builders interesting yeah it's also interesting to me that you know the way that they slow down the overheating housing market nationally is to raise is to raise market rates so there's fewer buyers in the mix and since there's fewer buyers in the mix sales have to come down prices have to come down but those buyers like they really wanted houses and yeah. they're still going to want houses and two years are going to go by and they're, they're going to want a house and because yeah you know we we never kept up with population growth since 2008 because builders all got really um i'm trying to think of the best word for it but builders were not going to make the same mistake again right they weren't going right. to build 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 they're gun shy yeah yeah gun shy that's a great word for Good it word. so yeah and now we're feeling the effects of that and even lumber the reason we don't have as much lumber as we need is because they didn't plant the trees in 2008 because there was a recession and they didn't think hey maybe right. in 10 years we're going to need trees Right. And on top of that, uh, one of the fascinating byproducts of that whole sort of thread is that a lot of the lumber comes from the southeastern United States. And um, in the uh, recession, the um, a lot of the old sawmills went under and they can't really be rebuilt. It would cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and they went under. So so just like in in gasoline and you know meat products it's like the middleman the the you know the uh the, the that processes are handled uh is is the choke point um and so it, it's a real problem and then um and you know one of the things that um i in watching all this go on is um you know that these people want to buy but but if you think about it you know really what the fed is doing 
and I'm not exaggerating, is they're taking a baseball bat and beating the economy. They're trying to literally damage it to cause employment to rise, you know, um, and and that reduces the number of people that can actually buy because you can't really buy if you don't have a job, right? And it's a, it's just sort of the reverse. You would think, you know, uh, you know, it seems like the opposite of, you know, you know, the, you know, the joke about like the IRS says, Hey, I'm here, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help you. Uh, but, but, you know, we're seeing this challenge. So, so the, so the reality is that, um, uh, we're delaying, um, millennials largely from getting into housing, um, uh, you know, in, in sort of an orderly fashion. Mm. Wow. You could write a book, I think, Jonathan. I'm working on one. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. We'll have a signing down here. And okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> wow. That's crazy. A lot to think about. So do you, do people come to you for advice? Like, Hey, should I sell my house? Should I buy a house? Should I sit tight? Should I build a house? Like, you know, do you have do you right. have to do crystal ball projections about advising people what to do? Well, my crystal ball is held together with duct tape, so I always had that disclaimer. Wait, you could get duct tape. And I thought that was one of the things that the supply chain had basically put an end to buying. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I, I'm just I must be lucky. I have I have an adequate supply of it. Um, but uh, so we so I think that that's lo- so um, the people come to me on more macro issues rather than, hey, should I buy this house in this price range? I think, you know, a really informed, you know, a broker with local expert knowledge is better than I am in terms of someone that's a trusted advisor. Uh, In that regard, um, I certainly have done that, but that's not a big part of our business. Ours is more, um, you know, what's the big sort of the macro view? What's what the big picture? You know, one of the things that actually I just finished on Wednesday I teach uh, market analysis to Columbia grad students for the summer semester. And I'm doing that for four or five years for their master's of real estate development program. And it's, it's fascinating because here you have sort of, you know, the cohort of the population that, you know, is going to buy homes pretty soon. And, um, you know, and they, they're, it's sort of like a clean slate. Like they they haven't engaged in the housing market and all the nuances that people that have or people like myself that track it and follow it. And um, and and so they ask questions that are sometimes really hard to answer. And uh, and I think probably the hardest question would ever be would be, you know, is this a good time to buy? Because it really depends on the individual finances and situation of a person, you know, more than it does on the actual market itself. Like I'm not a huge believer in market timing and sort of there are people that seem to be okay in that, but I, I'm not a big believer in it as a sort of, you know, you know, yeah, buy low, sell high. Right. (laughs) But, um, but then you just had your fifth baby and, you know, and you need more room like that supersedes, uh, everything else. So, so that's my non-answer to your question. <clears throat> Just driving today uh, on Long Island, you know, you go pla- past a place and it's like, oh, that's 200 new units, 250 new units. 
but the units are for people who make like you know middle six figures or something they're not new units for for you know somebody's first apartment before five years go by and they buy a house we're not doing starter homes or even starter rentals anymore on long island no and i wouldn't i wouldn't and so when i look at that you're absolutely right i mean that's the problem um it's it's listen i believe that builders will build whatever is economically the the best for that parcel that they have and and so the problem has been over especially over the last decade is land has not reset land is still very expensive um and now we have a run on construction materials and labor mm-hmm. so the math doesn't pencil in unless they skew to the sort of upper half of the of the market and that you know that's a problem because then you end up building too much of that and not enough of the up so when you just look at stats like you know new home sales and you look at multifamily units coming online it doesn't tell you what kind of units those are it's just raw numbers it's and it's really all about the mix so Annette, is there anything else that you want to ask Jonathan? I think this was really. Go? I feel like we could have Jonathan on every other week and talk about a different topic. Well, listen, you're 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 welcome to have me on anytime. I'm happy to chat whenever you'd like. Um, as one of my family members said, I never met a microphone I didn't like, <laughs> so um, I'm happy to uh, to uh, to talk about the Hamptons or whatever. I should just start, you know, recording for broadcast all of the interviews that I do with Jonathan anyway. <laughs> I'll be with Brendan will call me and I'll be like standing on a busy intersection in Manhattan, you know, trying to hear him because it's so loud. And and he'll grill me hard for like, you know, 30, 45 minutes. <laughs> and uh, it's always good. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Twenty Seven Speaks is sponsored by the law firm of Toomey, Latham, Shea, Kelly, Dubin, and Corderaro. Strong advocacy and attentive counsel. Be well advised. SuffolkLaw.com. Thank you for listening. Join us again next week to hear what's news on the East End. Our interlude flute music is by Allison O'Reilly. Our opening and closing theme music is Boysdale Blues, written and performed by the incomparable Judy Carmichael. Listen to Judy's weekly show, Jazz Inspired, airing on an NPR station near you, or go to jazzinspired.com. 27 Speaks is a weekly podcast produced by the Express News Group, which includes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, 27East.com, and sagharborexpress.com Find us on the websites or subscribe through Apple Podcasts.